Welcome to the fifth and final debate of the 2020 China Power Debate Series. I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks to all of you for joining us today virtually. Before we begin our debate, we have a special guest uh, joining us to talk about U.S.-China relations. I'm delighted to have with us Congressman Rick Larson, who represents the second congressional district of Washington state, and importantly for this conversation, is the co-chair of the bipartisan U.S.-China Working Group, which was created in 2005 to provide accurate information to members of Congress on critical issues pertaining to China um, and to provide a forum for discussion uh, with Chinese officials and leaders. And in this capacity, Congressman Larson has really made a significant contribution to the understanding of China within Congress. He's frequently engaged with experts on China as well to discuss China's internal developments and its evolving approach to the world. And I admire his determination uh, to uh, help Congress understand China and his dedication to protecting American interests and to promoting better understanding uh, between our two countries. So we're going to start with some framing remarks from Congressman Larson, and then I'll pose a few questions. Um, if time allows, uh, we'll take a few questions from our viewers. So with that, um, I would like to hear Congressman Larson, your perspectives on US-China relations at this really challenging time for our country and so many people around the world. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bonnie, and, and thanks to CSIS China Power um, for uh, asking me to say a few words and take a few questions. Um, I'm uh, coming to you live from Everett, Washington today. A little, uh, it's early in the morning out here in uh, Washington State. I want to thank you for a chance to say a few words about this uh, relationship because uh, it has evolved since 2005 uh, when Mark Kirk and I started the U.S.-China Working Group in Congress. You know, we began that, as you noted, to help educate members of Congress uh, about the uh, relationship that exists between the United States and China. And uh, one of the fundamental tenets of the U.S.-China Working Group is that we don't think there is one relationship between the U.S. and China, that it's various relationships depending upon the issue. And over time, uh, depending on the issue, things have gone well and things have gone poorly. Uh, I think right now, if you look at the uh, general direction of the overall relationship, it's not going very well at all. Uh, that's not breaking news, I'm sure, for anyone. But I, I do think it has an implication for um, the incoming administration and uh, implications for Congress as well. Uh, one of the, one of the um, um, ways I've tried to categorize uh, members of Congress uh, in you know, this is my this is my political science in me that you know one day I want to be a political scientist. So, finding ways to, to classify and categorize things is important. Um, we've always talked about the you know the hawk and dove metaphor when talking about um, how we approach national security, foreign policy, and with regard to China, we, we had you know economic security hawks. Those are the kind of the trade um, protectionist. Uh, China's eating our lunch, um, folks national security hawks with concerns about uh, military modernization and the right, not just the rise of China economically, but the rise of China militarily. 
And then uh, human rights hawks, uh, those members of Congress who focus a lot on issues like these days, like Hong Kong and Xinjiang. But that classification really isn't, I think, accurate, an accurate description uh, or as helpful as looking at members of Congress and their approaches a, a different way. And so I, I've got a, a different way to think about them as punishers, uh, decouplers, and salvagers. Um, that is, um, from a legislative perspective, we've had, what, 300, 400 pieces of legislation introduced just this in this 116th Congress on China, um, where members of Congress are taking a, an approach to punish China. Think of sanctions on individuals as an example. Uh, um, so those are the, the kind of the punishers. Then there are the decouplers uh, looking at the economic relationship, but trying to really sever that economic relationship. Uh, and then the salvagers, which I would put uh, me uh, in that category, and people like Darren LaHood, a Republican who's the co-chair of the US-China Working Group, recognizing there's areas of where we're going to um, conflict, where we're going to compete, but there are areas where we need to cooperate. And so trying to salvage parts of that relationship in a way that keeps a, um, uh, uh, keeps a process open to think about this relationship strategically. Uh, and I think that's where we sit today. And I think that's what the administration, incoming administration needs to consider that Congress has changed, the consent, the center of gravity in, in China has changed in Congress. And that um, as the Biden-Harris team approaches Congress say, for nomination fights, uh, or for even crafting um, legislation or crafting approach when they're talking to members of Congress, keeping in mind that there is a, uh, that center of gravity has changed, that there are um, folks who uh, are punishers and decouplers and, and salvagers as well. Uh, um, and so I think it's going to be, it's going to prove to be an interesting time because the administration probably doesn't have a lot of time to um, get, you know, to accept this uh, from Congress uh, and adjust. And so as we think about the Biden-Harris team and who they're putting in place in these positions, I think they need to be thinking about how they're going to approach members of Congress, how they're going to approach the Senate for confirmations, um, keeping, keeping this change in the center of gravity uh, in mind. And finally, I will note uh, on two, two points, uh, one point with two to, uh, to an A and a B here. There are two areas where I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room from Congress. Uh, one is on human rights. I've uh, seen several pieces of legislation on Xinjiang uh, pass. I've seen uh, Congress taking a, the House and Senate taking a much stronger vocal and rhetorical stance on what's going on in Hong Kong with the national security law and its implementation. And many members, not many, but several members of Congress, like myself, we've met some of these um, folks who, in Hong Kong who have been arrested and um, uh, have had conversations with them in the past. We know them, uh, the young and the old. And so um, I think that there's not a lot of wiggle room on the role of, of uh, human rights and how we approach that from the U.S. perspective. The second uh, where I think there's not a lot of wiggle room is in the issue of technology. You know, folks, have, not me, I, I won't claim this as mine, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, some folks said we're not in a trade war with China, we're in a tech war. And I think from a congressional perspective, mo most members of Congress who follow this issue believe that's true. And so having an approach on technology, on um, technology transfers, on 5G investment, on the role of artificial intelligence, 
uh, and its uses, um, the, the development of algorithms and who gets their hand, hands on those. The administration is going to um, really have to um, uh, uh, keep that issue uh, really close at heart because uh, I think in Congress we see technology and this fourth industrial revolution as an as a economic advantage that we don't want to lose. If we are losing it, we want to get it back. And so probably not a lot of wiggle room for the incoming administration on that either. So those are just some thoughts I'll, I'll toss out for, for you, Bonnie, and the good folks at, uh, on the podcast and the webinar to think about and uh, turn it back over to you. Great, Congressman. Um, thanks so much for those really thoughtful remarks. I like your categorization uh, of the different groups uh, in Congress and may reflect to some extent uh, the broader uh, uh, constituencies and other communities uh, that follow China. Uh, but let, let me ask you whether you really think that there is a, a, a bipartisan consensus, at least on some issues. And so many people who talk about uh, views of China today in Congress do say there is now a bipartisan um, uh, consensus and, and not just in Congress, but uh, across uh, other groupings where uh, there's a view that uh, China is now seen as posing the biggest challenge to the United States, uh, as you said, technology seen as a central area of uh, competition. And we know that in the Trump administration that the US-China relationship was, was framed um, as one of strategic competition and, and China was labeled uh, a, a rival. So, uh, if there are areas of consensus in Congress, what do you see as those areas and what are the key areas of difference? Yeah. Well, I think that the, um, there's a variety of areas that cause levels of concern that um, for members of Congress and the approaches that we generally have taken have been uh, areas where steps that we've taken that don't really reflect a, 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 an offense, but rather the United States getting defensive. Um, I'm thinking of uh, on, on technology, the administration's approach, the current administration's approach has been less about trying to um, beat China at its own game, if you want to call it that, or you know, invest and get our own house in order, if you want to call it that the kinds of things that we can do to make the United States stronger relative to whatever China is doing on technology, much less any other country is doing, um, so that we provide that other choice that, or a, another set of choices for others to make when it comes to 5G investment and the like. What are we doing about um, being active on standards setting um, when these groups meet? to set standards on technology? Are we being active or do we have an offensive approach going into these meetings, um, well laid out plans, working with our friends and allies to ensure that, um, that uh, the US ideas about transparency and openness and as they translate into actual, um, uh, actual standard setting is that getting reflected? I, and I think that's where um, we uh, lack. So it's not so much, you know, it, it, my, my main criticism is really not that there isn't a consensus and that consensus is kind of changed the center of gravity to be more negative. It's that we haven't done, we haven't taken the action to look at things 
uh, beyond just a, a, a relationship between the U.S. and China. Now, the, the China doesn't necessarily look at the U.S.-China relationship as strictly its only relationship, um, uh, as strictly a bilateral relationship, and there's nothing else going on in the world. We've tended to look at the U.S.-China relationship as a bilateral and nothing else is going on in the world that impacts that. We need to do a better job, and this will sound like a broken record, um, a better job of uh, addressing that consensus and bringing our friends and allies and partners in as part of that, and sometimes taking the lead from our friends and partners and allies as well. Um, so that I think that's where we should be headed. Uh, again, I don't think that's going to be news to anyone, um, but I think that's a change that would, I'd like to see happen in the incoming administration. You mentioned uh, Hong Kong and uh, human rights as being areas that uh, will continue uh, to receive attention in Congress. And we know that President-elect Biden uh, during the campaign had some tough words to say on both of those issues. And in fact, uh, his campaign did say that what is taking place in uh, Xinjiang in these camps uh, is genocide. And that goes uh, beyond uh, what the Trump administration has said. Uh, but the Trump administration did take many uh, actions, particularly in Hong Kong, to change that relationship fundamentally uh, and to try to punish people uh, in Beijing who are responsible for uh, essentially violating uh, one country, two systems, and uh, not uh, respecting the autonomy that was promised uh, to, to Hong Kong. And of course, actions taken on Xinjiang as well. So my question is, what more do you think can be done uh, by uh, Congress or uh, the executive branch in the next administration to try and influence Chinese policies in that area. As you know, it's really hard to, uh, to influence China's decision-making on those particular issues. Uh, so is there more that we, that we could do and that we should do? Yeah, uh, let me make two points before I answer that. Um, human rights is a long game. Uh, and standing up for human rights is a long game. And I think from a rhetorical perspective, the US is going to have to continue to show that leadership in Beijing, that um, we are in, in for human rights for the, for the long term. It's not going to be a, a, uh, something that we turn on or off. And, I, and you know, frankly, that's where Congress is, Democratic and Republican, very bipartisan. And uh, um, so that's, uh, so I hope the, the Biden team can continue um, with their, with the strong rhetoric on, on human rights. Um, the second is finding a way to, um, finding a way to operationalize that in the relationship. Uh, it may become an annoyance to, um, or an outright insult to the Beijing leadership. Uh, I don't think that members of Congress are going to care about that. Um, and so the administration is going to have to make some, the incoming administration will have to make some decision about how strongly they want to, um, continue to press this because they will get pressure from, from, uh, from Congress, uh, on finding ways to continue to address human rights, um, in, in China. You know, I guess a third thing I'd say, there's one more thing is that, um, 
I mean, I like how you framed that, you know, the, the, the administration, the Trump administration is um, really pressed on human rights. Uh, I, I would say, you know, we wouldn't have had to, right? We didn't, we didn't make the choice to pass a national security law. We didn't make the choice to set up labor camps in Xinjiang um, uh, and, uh, or, or try to um, wipe out the Uyghurs. Um, we're not making those choices. The Chinese uh, leadership is making those choices. And, um, and I think we have more, I think the U.S. has more friends on this issue than China does. And, uh, and we need to as well address this from a, a multilateral and collective perspective. Recently, um, the Trump administration did uh, announce sanctions on 14 members of the National People's Congress Standing Committee, um, which includes asset freezes and, and, and travel bans. And this was taken in response to the ongoing crackdown um, in Hong Kong and, as you mentioned, the imposition of the national security laws. And of course, the NPC is Congress's counterpart. Um, organizations. So I, I wanted to ask specifically what you think of that um, action uh, and whether you think that that will in any way affect your interactions with the Chinese going forward. And uh, do you think this was uh, an appropriate action? Is this the kind of thing we should be doing? Is, is it mostly symbolic or do you think it's more than that? Well, it's going to be mostly symbolic until um, the Chinese ban me from travel to China. <laughs> That's much less symbolic. Um, and the only thing stopping me right now uh, from traveling to China is COVID-19 and, um, and, the, and the issues around that. Um, and, I, you know, it's half, half joking uh, on that. But I think that the... the, um, um, the if we're going to get to a point where the U.S. and China are, in fact, trying to work through uh, this era of where we're competing, but there's area, areas where we need to cooperate, then um, banning travel among uh, leaders like those on the standing committee uh, probably isn't, well, it isn't a good idea because these are the folks who um, we, we need to talk to them. They need to talk to us. Uh, I know the MPC is a, a rubber stamp, uh, but uh, I do know that they're also um, communicators with uh, others in the Chinese leadership. And, you know, they, we need to have the opportunity to tell them what we think. And I always tell folks, it's, um, you, I've been to China 11 times and uh, a few, few of my colleagues criticize me for, for going uh, that many times, but I tell them, it's like, you know, you, you get to stand outside the room and yell at China. Um, I'm inside the room yelling at, yelling at the Chinese leaders who need to hear it from us. Um, we're better off being in the room uh, across the table, literally across the table from each other, being frank and honest and open in these discussions than uh, lobbying uh, press releases or, uh, you know, for, for me reading, reading China daily to read what they, you know, really think of the United States. I, I'd rather be one-on-one -on -one or, you know, five-on-five -five or whatever many folks we can get over there to, uh, to talk to them directly. And so travel bans like this um, kind of um, get in the way of continuing those uh, discussions and those debates. 
I'll give you a question from one of our viewers, uh, So Ray Harrison uh, from Marobeni America Corporation um, asks, uh, how does Congress generally frame the US-China competition? Is it Cold War 2.0 with the resulting end state producing a winner and a loser? Or is it about finding a sustainable state of coexistence? So as you said, there's multiple views in um, Congress, yeah. but how would you yeah. respond yeah. to that question? Uh, yeah, thanks. Generally, generally, um, I don't sense that uh, Congress, uh, you know, as a collective group, we don't, we don't um, categorize it as Cold War 2.0. Um, I think it's, it's a, your, some of your viewers may not understand this reference, but a few, few years back on the Halloween episode of Saturday Night Live, Tom Hanks played this character called David S. Pumpkins. And it was quite a cultural, swept the cultural milieu here in the United States for a couple of, couple of weeks. And he said at one point in the skit, he goes, I'm my own thing. And I think that's probably the way to describe this US-China relationship. It's its own thing. It's not a, it's not a Cold War 2.0. It, it has its own dynamics. Um, uh, obviously the leaders are very different um, as well. There is a level of competition um, uh, to it, but uh, I think with a country, with two countries that are so integrated to each other, and two countries that are so integrated um, in the global economy, just to start, um, it, it really doesn't lend itself to the Cold War 2.0. So I, I think um, I would just say it's its own thing without getting too far into trying to describe it, exactly how to characterize it. I know it, I know what it isn't, um, but trying to define what it is these days, it's not going well. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a question from Charles Kimball uh, from the Korea Center for International Finance. Sure. And he wants to know um, whether you can address the issue of China's growing role in Latin America and what the US is doing to uh, counter it and expand our influence. Is that something that you personally, your office or other members of Congress are paying attention to? Yeah, other members are, um, are are paying attention to that. I obviously do track that, but I, I think they're going to see with uh, our um, incoming chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Gregory Meeks uh, from uh, New York City. Um, he's uh, the incoming chair, and he has talked about the U.S. role uh, in Latin America more as a partner um, than anything and trying to ensure that we up our game there. And this gets into the broader question too of, of the Belt Road Initiative and whether the United States or U.S. and its allies and partners uh, have a, an alternative, uh, not a one-for-one dollar alternative to the BRI. I don't think that's going to be possible, but uh, we don't need that uh, as much as we need to have a plan to, a plan to have presence, a plan to be there. Um, and this would apply to, in countries in Africa, it would apply to um, regions like Latin America uh, as well. And we've put some pieces in place. Uh, we need to fund those pieces. Um, you know, we have the Export-Import Bank. We've changed uh, OPIC, the uh, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, um, through, through legislation recently to create a, a uh, um, uh, through, through, through actually some of the help from some of your colleagues at CSIS. Um, as well. So I, I think it's, it's a matter of uh, upping our game 
so that the U.S. is seen as being more of a partner. Our challenge is we don't run U.S. Incorporated, and I think that's a big challenge uh, to counter the BRI because uh, China as a country, as a government, its policy, it's basically taking its industrial policy and trying to you know, export that model a little bit. Uh, but we don't do that. We, 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 we actually, you know, we use, you know, this private investment markets usually lead on investment for uh, in the United States. And we want to use that model, but the U S government can be um, a facilitator and enabler uh, of, of companies. And we need to do a better job on that. So that's how, that's how we're thinking about that. So one last question from uh, Collins Chung from the University of uh, Malaya. The race for technological edge, especially in the spheres of quantum uh, and 5G and AI, has been increasingly putting uh, the U.S. and its superiority, I don't know if that's the right word, but our edge uh, in these areas under tremendous challenge and pressure. So what, uh, should, what is the U.S. doing? What should we do to ensure that the, uh, the advantage uh, basically is still in the direction of the United States. And uh, I, would, I would add to that question, since you just referred um, to uh, in, in, in industrial uh, strategies, do you think that we should be developing more in the United States? Is this the right response to compete with China's industrial policies? Yeah, thanks. Um, I think the first thing is we just need to declare that we're going to lead. Uh, we need to set those aggressive goals. Um, for instance, I think about the Chinese leadership officially says, you know, they want to lead in AI, be the world leader in AI in 2030. And our response in the United States has been to, you know, pull our hair out. Um, I think our response ought to be to say, fine, well, you'll be behind us because we're going to be leading by 2029. All right, we should just set the goals and start doing these things, so do, taking the actions we need to take to continue um, our technological edge. The National Defense Bill, which we passed in the House and the Senate over the last week, the president has said he's going to veto it over unrelated issues. If he does, we will override it. And that National Defense Bill has the CHIPS Act in it. The CHIPS Act is a, is a separate piece of legislation folded into the defense bill that, that makes a serious United States investment in uh, semiconductors, which is a foundational technology for a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, what has to happen uh, to maintain the lead in technology. So we're taking action um, there. I have legislation, it actually it's, in, it's law now, where we're um, expanding the education in the defense department about AI. What artificial intelligence is, what it isn't. We're not trying to create 2.2 million coders as much as we're just trying to be sure that we have a model we're educating people. What is AI? Why is it important? Uh, and this is a model based on what Finland has done. Um, uh, so there, there's, there are big things we need to do. There are little things we need to do, but we are not going to, as some have suggested, even in the United States, surprisingly have suggested that um, the U.S. sort of just nationalized some of this stuff. And, you know, uh, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a capitalist. We are not going to be nationalizing um, large parts of our economy. Uh, we are going to do it the way we've always done it. But we, there are opportunities to work with um, like-minded partners, like-minded allies um, who support transparency and openness and markets. 
uh, as a different model. Uh, but we, we need to get started on that because that race has already started. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, I really appreciate all of your really thoughtful remarks and the hard work that you are uh, doing in Congress uh, for America uh, and uh, hopefully to help us manage the U.S.-China relationship going forward. We do have a few other questions, but I'm afraid uh, that we have run out of time. Uh, and I know that you have work uh, that you have to get to. So yeah. thank you so much, Congressman Morrison, uh, for joining us today for the last session of the 2020 China Power Debates. Thank you very much, Bonnie, and thank you to everyone at CSIS. Appreciate it. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you too. Well, we're now going to turn to our fifth and final debate. And uh, I'm joined by Rebecca Fannin and uh, Matt Turpin, and I'm going to introduce them in just a minute. Uh, but first I'm gonna talk a little bit about the topic uh, of our debate today. The proposition is selective US-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. Uh, the Trump administration has tightened restrictions on exports to leading Chinese uh, telecom and semiconductor companies. And the measures are intended to prevent US exports from aiding the Chinese military or helping China in its effort to undermine democracies. In addition, the United States has taken measures to encourage American companies to diversify their production and supply chains uh, to, in order to reduce reliance uh, on China. Given the interconnectedness of the global economy, these efforts could pose a challenge to the competitiveness of Chinese tech firms and manufacturers. To limit the negative impact on China, Beijing is encouraging the pursuit of self-reliance in key technologies and prioritizing technological innovation as a core driver of economic growth. And uh, this past October, um, uh, the Communist Party leadership uh, has agreed to a new uh, five-year plan, actually, I think it was just uh, last month, uh, which puts scientific and technological innovation at the heart of China's uh, modernization program, which of course has the goal of becoming, uh, making China into a global leader in innovation by uh, 2035. That was an objective that was set out by Xi Jinping at the 19th Party Congress. So before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to ask our viewers to cast your votes either for or against uh, the proposition, which again is selective US-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. We will vote again after our uh, debate one final time. And uh, so now that while everybody is vo voting, I'm going to introduce uh, our speakers. So today we have uh, joining us arguing for the proposition is Matt Turpin. And Matt is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution doing research on economic statecraft and technology innovation. He's also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies, and he was previously a senior advisor for, for China at the US Department of Commerce and a director for China at the National Security Council. Arguing against the proposition is Rebecca Fannin. She's founder of Silicon Dragon Ventures 
And she's also a special correspondent for CNBC and writes a weekly column for Forbes. Uh, Ms. Fannin is author of Silicon Dragon, How China is Winning the Tech Race, and uh, also uh, author of Tech Titans of, of China. So uh, there we have it. Um, we have two fantastic uh, experts to debate our proposition today, which is selective US-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. So let's put up the results of our, uh, of our poll and see what we have. 57% uh, agree. Um, now it's dropping a little bit, 55% to 45%. So just about 10% discrepancy between the two. And uh, uh, we'll take maybe just another 10 seconds while people can uh, add uh, the votes. Uh, it takes a little bit of time to get into the system. So I want to give everybody a chance to vote. Um, and then uh, in a minute, I'm going to show you the results of a Twitter poll, which we, we conducted over the last uh, four days in advance of this debate. And uh, it's, it's a little different uh, than, uh, than, than these results, but, but not, not too far off. So I think we'll close the voting here. We have 54% agreeing and 46% disagreeing. And we'll show you the results of our, um, our Twitter poll, which had 65.5% um, agreeing and 34.5% disagreeing. So a little bit more tilted in the direction of agreeing with the proposition, but both polls uh, here among our viewers live and also on our Twitter poll had more poll people uh, agreeing with the proposition than disagreeing with uh, the proposition. So I think um, uh, we'll, we'll have an interesting discussion today. Um, I'll just quickly review over the next um, uh, hour uh, plus, uh, about an hour and 10 minutes, how our uh, event is going to run. Both speakers will have a maximum of 15 minutes to present their initial remarks after they make their arguments, each will have five minutes uh, to respond to the other speaker. And then we're going to take questions from our viewers. And please, if you send in questions, send questions that are directly pertinent to the proposition so that the answers will enrich the debate and help our understanding uh, of the arguments. And then following that uh, Q&A, we'll quickly do a final poll. And, and I hope that all of you will stay with us to the end so that you can cast your votes after listening uh, to the entire debate. So with that introduction, um, I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca Fannin, uh, who is going to argue uh, for uh, the proposition that we have before us today. Um, that, uh, um, no, she's arguing against, sorry. We're gonna go with Matt first. I always go with the four first, so my apologies. We're gonna start with Matt Turpin, who is arguing that selective US-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. Over to you, Matt. Well, Bonnie, that, that would have been a really uh, <laughs> interesting set of arguments. Um, it would have been a fun time uh, to switch it up right at the last minute. So, yeah. Bonnie, thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this debate. Um, it's a real honor to join uh, and take part um, in this last debate in a series that I think has been absolutely spectacular. So my hat's off to you um, and the whole CSIS team uh, for putting together, I think, a really quality seri uh, series series. Um, despite all the unique 
you know, conditions that we're, we're obviously all find ourselves in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm joining you from my, my basement home office in Northwest DC, um, which I'm sure for many of the, uh, of the viewers out there, uh, they're in similar conditions uh, during these sort of unique times uh, that, that we're all enduring. Um, I feel sort of vastly underqualified uh, given the, the women and men who have represented various sides during these debates. Um, so I'm going to do my best uh, in what is bound to be, I think, an interesting discussion, especially given the expertise that Rebecca brings to this issue. Um, so we're here to debate uh, the proposition, selective U.S.-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. Uh, when Bonnie first contacted me about this, about participating in this debate, you know, what, what struck me was that, that the proposition seemed a bit odd, at least to me, um, because in many important ways uh, across a number of strategic industries, the United States and the PRC are not coupled. Um, you know, I'd remind everyone that when Niall Ferguson and Moritz uh, Schauselerk uh, coined the term Chimerica back in 2007, um, that that was largely a play on words, right? That, that, that coupling of the U.S. and the PRC economies uh, was a, a chimera in, in many important ways. And I think that that, that often colors um, our, our understanding of, of what is sort of actually happening across our economies in a broad and important way. For decades, the United States and other like-minded countries have actively denied Beijing access to the, to the manufacturing know-how and the critical components needed to become a global leader in various high-tech industries. Um, this is well-established. It's been happening for decades and it continues to remain in place. Through a combination of multilateral dual-use export controls, uh, export controls on, on defense articles and defense services, on internationally aligned investment security regulations, restrictions on, on access to, to R&D, the PRC has been set back in their emergence as a global high-tech leader. In fact, in a number of strategic industries, the PRC remains two or more generations behind the global cutting edge leadership. The failure to even achieve parity is not due to any fault of Chinese researchers and scientists, right? Or the inherent weaknesses of the PRC's political system. It is due almost entirely to the fact that the United States and a number of other countries have made it incredibly hard for the PRC to catch up in a number of these areas through this concerted effort across both public and private sectors to deny the PRC cutting edge technology that would allow them to come to parity. These conditions and policies are unlikely to change given the worsening geopolitical relationship with the PRC and other democracies around the world. And so let's take real quick uh, <clears throat> what I would think is a, a, a look at, at two examples 
of industry sectors where, where this has played out and continues to play out. The manufacture of advanced aircraft and the manufacture of advanced semiconductors. Two sectors that the United States and other advanced economies identify as dual use sectors that have broad impacts on both national security and economic prosperity. I'd remind everyone that, that both the manufacture of commercial aircraft and semiconductors are the second and third most valuable manufactured US exports um, and play integral roles into the United States' qualitative military advantage that it remains over its adversaries and potential adversaries. And these are also two sectors that the PRC for decades has identified uh, as areas that, that they seek to, to become a global leader in, efforts that to date have failed. So let's take a look at sort of the aviation and aerospace sector. Um, I'd encourage you know, all the viewers uh, to watch an excellent piece by our CSIS colleague, Scott Kennedy, that aired just a week ago, a video that, that's posted on YouTube uh, titled China's Stalled Aircraft Dreams. The PRC has been trying for nearly 50 years to create an advanced commercial aviation industry. And for 50 years, that has failed. If we look back at the, the unsure program of the 1970s, this failed to produce commercial aircraft of quality that can compete on the world stage. In the 1980s, Chinese state-owned enterprises joined with McDonnell Douglas uh, to produce uh, a globally competitive commercial aircraft. That deal collapsed after concerns that the technology was being diverted to the PLA's military programs for aircraft production. And, and in this decade, in, in really in the last two decades, we've watched as COMAC uh, has sought to create a competitive uh, uh, regional aircraft called the C919 uh, that, have, that is still way behind schedule and has not yet achieved the goals that the PRC has laid out. So why hasn't the, uh, the PRC been able to achieve its long sought goals of technology leadership in this important, both economically important and national security important sector of aviation and aerospace? It's because the United States and other advanced economies have effectively remained uncoupled from the PRC through the combination of the policies and regulations that I described earlier. For instance, in the US Export Administration regulations, you know, it is under, under category nine that aerospace uh, and propulsion uh, are restricted from, from access uh, by the PRC and has been so you know, significantly since 1989 when both the United States, the Europeans and the Japanese all placed uh, export, you know, increased export controls on militarily relevant technologies in the wake of the Tiananmen massacre. Those regulations uh, hit multiple segments of a highly complex industry that requires exquisite uh, uh, systems integration to be able to create world competitive aircraft. For example, the design and manufacture of advanced turbojet engines, which is an integral part of creating any sort of domestic aviation industry, uh, still remains beyond the bounds of what the PRC is able to put together. And the design, manufacture, and integration of advanced avionics, right, essentially the operating system for aircraft 
continue to remain beyond the PRC's uh, 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 ability to be able to make happen. Despite hundreds of billions of dollars of investment and comprehensive cyber and traditional espionage campaigns, the PRC remains at least two generations behind in jet aircraft engine production. GE, Pratt Whitney, Saffron, and Rolls-Royce all continued to sell completed engines to the PRC, but remain unwilling to share their know-how uh, in order to gain market access. It's simply, they are willing to provide the complete engines, but are unwilling for their own personal, for their own business reasons, um, and because of regulations that are placed on them by their home countries to turn over the know-how to how to create those engines. The same plays out in the realm of advanced avionics um, with, with US and European companies willing to provide some components but continue to withhold uh, the key components to be able to allow the PRC to build out its own domestic industry. We can also take a look at the same situation in the semiconductor industry. For decades, the PRC has sought to become you know, on par with the United States, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Europe on the creation of advanced semiconductors. And despite hundreds of billions of investments, Right? and efforts across sort of multiple sectors, the PRC still remains well behind US manufacturing of advanced semiconductors. That is unlikely to change in the near future. And the United States is likely to continue to use the regulations and policies to deny the PRC the ability to make progress in those areas. And so maybe I'll end with sort of this sort of closing thought um, as you all consider the proposition, the United States remains uncoupled from the PRC in several key high-tech industries. And that uncoupled relationship is unlikely to change. Through a, combination, through a comprehensive set of policies and regulations, the United States largely shares with other advanced economies. The PRC has been unable to emerge in these areas as a high tech leader and will likely continue to remain behind in those areas. And so for that reason, I think it is you know, advisable uh, to accept the proposition that continued selective decoupling will continue to set back China's emergence as a high tech leader. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. We're now going to turn to Rebecca Fannin to argue uh, against the proposition. Once again, the proposition is selective. U.S.-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. Rebecca? Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for the invitation to speak here today and to debate with Matt. And Matt, I look forward to meeting you someday. <laughs> uh, and Bonnie as well. So thank you, everyone. I um, have been re reporting about China technology from a Silicon Valley perspective for 15 years and have made endless trips to China as a journalist and also as part of the whole tech ecosystem, hosting events in Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen. Uh, so I do uh, know it well. Uh, from a close-up perspective and also from a journalistic perspective as a writer and an author. 
my uh, first book, uh, which Bonnie mentioned before, Silicon Dragon, was published in 2008. It was an early read on what was happening in China's tech development. Um, and Silicon Dragon, um, how China is winning the tech race was very early, but we have seen it develop, this Silicon Valley to Silicon Dragon develop with technology in the forefront, innovations in the forefront. And today um, we can point to a number of indicators of China's rise, uh, which are the root of this whole decoupling issue because we have seen China rise so quickly uh, over the past 15 years or so um, in innovations from a copycat nation, uh, which was accused of you know, copying Facebook, copying Apple, copying Google, copying Amazon, um, to now today much more uh, in-depth technology innovation uh, that was not there uh, not that long ago. So my point is that China has risen very, very quickly. We've seen Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent come up and become giants in industry, uh, in their fields and morph into many other fields beyond their core um, function. So they, these have become super apps, uh, giant companies that have global influence. We've seen the rise of a second generation of Chinese technology companies. These are companies like ByteDance, the maker of TikTok. Uh, we have seen China emerge in AI. Uh, this is one of the sectors that China has been highlighting as for growth. We've seen China emerge in robotics. We've seen China uh, become the world's second largest venture capital investor, right behind the US and in fact, at one point, China was ahead of the US in venture capital spending. And why is venture capital spending important? It's because it funds the startups that have the leading edge technologies. We've seen China uh, emerge faster in R&D um, than the US. We've seen China talk about and start to develop 6G, uh, where the US is still um, behind in many of these areas, um, behind uh, China. And China has caught up very quickly. And I think China's rise is really unstoppable. If you look at um, a number of areas, uh, such as just the sheer determination of, of the Chinese entrepreneurs and the sheer ambition um, and the assertiveness of the people and the increased confidence of the people that yes, we can do it. We, we, we are on the world stage now and I think it's really unstoppable and we are looking at this long, uh, long term trend. I think the China has become less reliant on the US. Um, we've seen companies like Huawei. Oh, okay, when we have tried to uh, put restrictions on Chinese tech companies, well, the, the result is that it reinforces them to say, okay, we're going to do it more our way over and over again. So Huawei comes up with its own chips development. It, it's part of this whole assertiveness, this whole increasing confidence that we see out of China today. We've seen Chinese companies uh, going global today on the global stage, which was not the case. Um, 15, 20 years ago, companies um, from China going into Southeast Asia, uh, where 
okay, well, if the US says you can't come in and invest in our companies, then China has turned to Southeast Asia, China has turned to Africa. China is having a very big impact in the tech development of Southeast Asia, investing very heavily, bringing its own technologies in, bringing its own companies into these areas. And it's creating a bigger, bigger sphere of influence throughout, um, throughout Asia. If you talk about supply change, I, supply chains, this has been an issue that uh, the US is saying, well, you need to um, come up with new ways of, of supplies beyond China. Well, I don't think that that's gonna change overnight. I think um, companies um, cannot get the components that they need from other markets that China does supply. So this is not going to happen overnight. I don't think we're gonna see this reshoring uh, implication. If you look, I mentioned the venture capital spending a little bit of while, a while ago. So we have now seen um, what's happening is a shift from this uh, US and China. We're seeing much more um, power and money going directly into China from venture capitalists that are homegrown, that are domestically oriented. And this is, contributing to this rise of these tech innovators in China. We've seen um, the US push back about listing, going public in uh, on NASDAQ and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I mean, in the uh, New York Stock Exchange. Well, the result is uh, that uh, we're now seeing more and more listings um, going to China, going to Hong Kong. Um, and uh, so I think uh, this pushback strategy is not working. It's actually making China uh, more powerful, more reliant on its own know-how. Um, I think, uh, yeah, that this threat uh, that we see, um, this decoupling that we see is, is actually just making China stronger. And I think um, another aspect of this is how China has handled the whole COVID situation. Um, China is coming out of this uh, faster than the US uh, and its economy is growing strong, um, is coming out of it faster. The economy is coming out of it faster, out of it faster because China, you know, cracked down on, on restrictions, you know, wearing masks, contact tracing, all this. China, I mean, you could argue about the methods, but it worked and, um, and now China is, emerging uh, stronger as a result and faster as a result. Um, we mentioned the, um, the new economic plan, um, the five-year plan. Well, this five-year plan, um, a lot of it is about innovation and a lot of it is about developing um, China's semiconductor business. Uh, so I've actually visited some Chinese semiconductor companies um, and toured them. And um, I know that, uh, that the US has the lead there and, and Taiwan and Korea have the lead there, but China, mainland China is determined to catch up within five to 10 years. So we are looking at a long-term horizon here. I think China has shown how far it has come ahead in such a, in such a short time in many, many areas. And also many of these uh, technology innovations in China today they're used a lot more than they are here in the US. Uh, for instance, um, self-driving, autonomous driving. 
it's much more widespread in China. It's, it's not, it hasn't really taken off yet in the US. Electric vehicles, another area. Robotics, another area. AI, another area. All these sectors in, in China tech today are advancing much more rapidly than they are in the US. Uh, not to mention the infrastructure issues, uh, where if you go to uh, places in, um, say, um, in Rust Belt cities in the US, you're going to see a lot of potholes, you're going to see a lot of, of, um, of rehab that's needed. Uh, where you go to China today, it's all starting from starting from, you know, brand new. And so the cities today, the infrastructure today in China uh, is, is really is uh, remarkable. And, um, and I think uh, the US by comparison um, uh, needs work. Uh, so I think I'll leave it there and uh, thank you for listening. We now turn back to you, Matt, for uh, five minutes of any responsive uh, comments you would like to make to Rebecca, and then we'll go back and let uh, Rebecca have five minutes as well. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie and, and Rebecca. Um, so, you know, first I'd start off with, you know, I, I, I completely agree with Rebecca's point about the determination and confidence of, of Chinese entrepreneurs of, of Chinese venture capitalists, of certainly their scientists and researchers, they have they have much to be proud of. Um, they have much to to celebrate in terms of the progress they've made. But I would also offer that 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 sort of determination and, and kind of confidence is often not enough uh, to to sort of compete in many of the areas in which the PRC is still. Well, well far behind. And so, you know, and I'd like to sort of touch on, on sort of two areas that you brought up. You know, the first would be sort of the field of AI, right? And, and the field of AI uh, is largely sort of segmented out into sort of four main components that would go into sort of AI leadership, right? That's, that's access to sort of quality data. It's access to the sort of human capital uh, that understands how to develop and implement and, and innovate in, in AI. And it's access, you know, number three is access to sort of the, the algorithms. And then last is, is the, the AI chipsets, right? The semiconductors that make up the chipsets that allow for those functions to be able to run. In the first three, the PRC has enormous advantages and it is absolutely in a position uh, to be able to challenge the United States. They have, you know, given the, given the government's ability to control they are able to gain access to data in ways that is very difficult for the United States to be able to do. Um, they have incredibly high quality human capital uh, and, and, and researchers that work in this field. Right? And, and the algorithms, to be honest, are largely sort of available worldwide, right? These are things that are largely available uh, through worldwide. However, when we get to that last component, right? The idea of, of AI chipsets, this goes back to the point I was making about the PRC semiconductor industry. Um, and if I were to sort of you know, segue into sort of a, you know, a comment you made about, about Huawei technologies, um, you know, just in August, Huawei announced that, that they would be building new 45 nanometer and 28 nanometer uh, wafer fabs to be able to supply them with US free chips. And that may sound sort of spectacular, right? And, and, in, and then Huawei may complete those factories uh, within the next year or two. 
But when they do complete them, they will have cutting edge 2002 technology, right? They will not have cutting edge sort of world leading technology and advanced chipsets, right? Samsung is developing its own five nanometer chipsets, right? US companies consistently operate at sort of the, the sub 14 space. Um, US manufacturing of, of, of specialized chipsets, not only for AI, but for, for, for example, field programmable gate arrays, right? The United States remains the sole producer of field programmable gate arrays, which is the key component in 5G base stations that makes it very difficult for Huawei to be able to sell its networking equipment, given the restrictions on, 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 uh, that the United States has placed uh, on, on Huawei. And so, you know, I would just offer that, that there are a number of technical aspects that make it very difficult for the PRC to achieve its goals, goals that they've had for decades and have spent hundreds of billions of dollars on and have not yet reached while the rest of the world continues to march forward in terms of innovation. And so, you know, they have a difficult problem of one catching up to the current level, but the net current level is not staying static and they have a, a continuing difficult level to be able to sort of move forward. The idea that the United States and other countries could continue to place controls and make it difficult through remaining uncoupled is likely to remain and likely to continue to be a major problem that the PRC is going to have a tr trouble overcoming. Thank you. Rebecca, five minutes for your response. Well, my main point is that our pushback and this decoupling is actually making China more determined than ever to, to push forward with these leading technologies. And it's, it's not just in semiconductors, it's in uh, supercomputers, it's in um, mobile uh, internet, it's in cloud computing, it's in all the areas that these fields touch, healthcare, manufacturing, finance, um, big data, uh, robotics, uh, biotech. Um, many of these areas have been um, highlighted, spotlighted by China for development and, and, and they are moved ahead very aggressively in getting these technologies into these uh, into these sectors, uh, so I, I think um, our our attempts to push China back are actually making are actually having uh, the opposite effect in that China is spending more money, uh, state-led money, and private money. Uh, to get ahead and to not only catch up to uh, the U.S., but surpass the U.S. And on the AI front, I'm going to point to Pai Fuli's book about where he says uh, that basically it's a very close race and China's coming up very, very quickly. And I would uh, agree with that. And, and then China is ahead of the U.S. in implementing AI into many industries, like I mentioned before, such as healthcare. Um, and finance. And so I think um, we're at a turning point now uh, where uh, this wasn't so much of an issue, say even a decade ago, but it has become a very major issue now. And I would call it a tech war or a cold tech war uh, in that China has risen so quickly that the US feels threatened. And that's why this whole, that's the whole root of this decoupling situation. 
And I just think that it's un unstoppable. I think that China's rise is unstoppable. We're now going to turn to the Q&A uh, portion of, of our debate, and uh, we've gotten some good questions. So uh, Rebecca, I'll start with you. You mentioned in your uh, last uh, comments, set of comments, uh, the private sector. So we have a question from Paul Bell from the University of Oklahoma. Um, and he asks, given that China's rise as a high-tech innovator has been driven by primarily, of course, the private sector, what do you think will be the effect of the emerging initiatives of the party to exert more control over private companies, and especially its recent effort to slap down Alibaba and Tencent? Right, well, the Alibaba effort on the IPO, yes. Um, I, look, um, this, um, if you're in China, you're doing business, uh, you have to um, make friends with the government. You know? And I've interviewed Jack Ma at Alibaba and, and uh, look, he knows that, he said that to me. Um, and I, I think that um, this is not uh, going to set back uh, Tencent and Alibaba. That it's an accepted way of doing business in China. Um, it's not um, maybe something that we're used to here in the U.S., but uh, that's the way it is in China, and uh, the leaders of those companies know it. Uh, but more broadly, the policies toward the private sector, do you think that that will inhibit, inhibit China's development of uh, high-tech going forward, that the uh, preferential policies are you know, being aimed really at the state-owned enterprises. You're saying when you, oh, you're talking Alibaba, Tencent. Well, they, those Tencent were examples, but um, I think the broader question was about policies in China that are hampering um, the private sector from gaining access, for example, to capital. Um, uh, relative to state-owned uh, companies. And yet the private sector has been the source of much of innovation and growth in, in the Chinese economy. So will this um, hamper China's uh, ambition to become a global high-tech power if they are um, uh, implementing policies that are not favorable to the private sector? Okay, well, so Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, the way that they were funded originally was through international venture capital. Um, and uh, they are now listed uh, companies. And uh, I think that uh, any, uh, any state-led efforts to influence them more um, is not going to hinder their technology innovation um, progress. Um, I, I just don't see that happening. Okay, um, uh, Matt, next question for you. You talked about China's uh, aircraft uh, sector and particularly uh, engines. And we have a question from Steve Schinkel of the US Naval War College. And he says that China is making progress in regards to re-engining the Y-20 transport with high bypass turbofan engines and that this may have implications for its commercial aircraft production because these are engines that are apparently used in air transportation. Uh, and uh, he says that this is a concern for both the European Union and the US um, and uh, 
is connected to the Made in China 2025 project. So um, how he, he asks how should um, uh, sort of like-minded democracies um, and, and aircraft producers, aircraft engine producers respond? Should we cooperate? Should we compete? Um, uh, and I guess I could extend this that if we, uh, if we cut ourselves off from the cooperation, does that end up slowing China down or do we um, negatively in any way impact our own development? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. And uh, yeah, just, a, just a quick plug on kind of the last question. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you know, viewers to go, go pick up Nick Lardy's book, you know, The State Strikes Back, The End of Economic Reform in China. I mean, he, he describes sort of in detail what he thinks will be the impacts of, of Xi Jinping's uh, you know, significant preference over, over state-owned enterprises, the reemergence of state-owned enterprises and sort of the hobbling of, of private industry that, that has done so much to move, you know, the, the, the progress we've seen uh, has, has largely been driven by, by, the state sec by, the, by the private sector and that Xi Jinping's actions are sort of the opposite of that, which would suggest that this will be continue to be uh, very problematic. Um, you know, in terms of 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 jet jet you know jet engine production that we're seeing, sort of from the PLA for the Y Y twenty, um, I, I think you know certainly this is an area that that the United States and and the Europeans and um, and others are going to have to watch. Um, I think it, it still remains to be seen whether these thing you know whether these advances will kind of go into full production um, and be able to compete on the same level that that sort of we watch you know the 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 ability of GE and Saffron and, and Pratt Whitney to be able to, to produce at scale uh, to be able to operate for you know thousands of hours with you know with with very minimal maintenance. Um, I'm I'm not yet convinced that 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 some of the things that we're seeing yet, you know, suggest that they are at full sort of production, right? Um, so um, it, it does remain to be seen. And I think certainly for, for the United States and other countries, it would encourage that they would, you know, that, that the way forward is to consider many of the techniques that they've been using in the past, which is, you know, cooperation on multilateral export control regimes like the Wassenaar arrangement, um, as a way to, to coordinate their efforts um, to be able to deny significant dual-use technologies to an industry sector that, that has obviously both significant commercial implications, but also significant military implications. Um, you know, my, these, are, these are systems and procedures that you know, are well-established um, and so it is highly likely that, that the United States and other countries will continue to utilize those venues of multilateral export control coordination as a place to be able to continue to do that. And I just would remind everyone that, that the PRC is not inside those regimes, right? So the PRC is outside those, those multilateral export control regimes. And therefore, it is highly likely the United States will continue to use them effectively. Our next question uh, I'd like to ask is about uh, the importance of espionage in China's high-tech uh, development. Uh, and we know that uh, the Department of Justice 
has been focused in its China initiative to uh, really try and stop some of the uh, efforts by China to steal high-tech uh, technology. Um, so I wanted to start by asking Rebecca whether um, espionage you think is still important in China's high-tech development and that if the United States is more successful in cutting off that particular source uh, of high technology, do you think that that will have a major impact? Well, if you look at the, uh, I'm here in Silicon Valley and um, we have seen a number of Chinese uh, companies come into the electric vehicle market with R&D facilities here in, in California. So if you take the um, electric vehicle market as an example, I, I think we have seen some instances there where uh, we have seen uh, security threats um, and, uh, and, and theft of, of, of property. And uh, we have seen some lawsuits come out of that. And so I think that this um, uh, is actually, um, becoming less of an issue today in, in some sectors like this because uh, the Chinese are not investing uh, heavily like they were before in China, in the US technology companies. Um, before there was um, tremendous amount of investment by the leading Chinese tech companies into, into our cutting edge technology companies here in the US. Now that this has been stopped, I, I think um, that whole spying issue, at least in, in, within technology of the U.S. companies, uh, has, could diminish actually. And I think I've seen this in the electrical vehicle market where uh, basically now China has put more emphasis on within its own market of developing the technologies needed to make electrical vehicles a reality. Matt, do you want to comment on the role of espionage in China's development of high technology and how important you think it is going forward? Well, I think that it, it continues to remain an important part of, of the PRC's sort of overall uh, technology competition strategy, right? It remains an integral part. Um, you know, the combination of sort of traditional espionage uh, cyber-enabled espionage. I'd, I'd remind everyone of the of the case of, uh, of of sort of the combined MSS sort of human espionage and cyber espionage case against Saffron and GE's uh, own sort of uh, uh, program to provide the LEP engine, uh, LEP aircraft engine to to uh, uh, to Comac. Um, in the building of the C919, right? This is, you know, a, a, a campaign that, that was underway for years um, that has been prosecuted by the U.S. Justice Department. There are a number of, of individuals that are in, in jail now that, are, that were MSS uh, operatives that, that were involved with this, as well as, you know, indictments on others that have not entered the United States. Um, so I think this continues to remain an important element of, of the PRC's broader strategy, particularly as these sort of combined investment screening, export controls, restrictions on R&D access remain in place. Espionage in both a traditional and cyber sense remains an, an important aspect of that and, and will continue to be so. 
um, as long as the U.S. Uh, and other democracies remain uncoupled in many of these strategic sectors. We've got a few questions about Taiwan, and so maybe I can just sort of try to roll these together. Uh, one is from Shen Jiangming from a, uh, an NGO uh, in Taiwan, and another one from Tom DeHuddy from Brandywine Global. And it's essentially these questions are about uh, what, um, uh, what kind of role Taiwan uh, plays in the era of economic decoupling? Um, how will Taiwan affect whether China can become a global high-tech leader? And we know that China has uh, uh, sourced, it's many of Chinese companies have sourced their supply of uh, semiconductors uh, from uh, uh, companies like uh, TSMC, uh, and, and, and others uh, in Taiwan, and uh, at least under the Trump administration, there has been an effort to try and curtail uh, those, uh, those supplies uh, to, uh, to China. So what is, what is really the role of, of Taiwan in this economic decoupling going forward? Is it, uh, it, it, is it potentially decisive? Uh, so um, maybe I'll start with you, Matt. Sure. Um... You know, obviously, in the field of, of sort of the global market for semiconductors, uh, Taiwan is a, is perhaps one of the most you know, critical locations uh, with the most advanced fabs in the world. Whether it's from TSMC or UMC, um, these these companies you know continue to to provide the sort of the contract manufacturing. Uh, for design firms that are in the United States that that produce, you know, some of the most advanced semiconductors in the world, right? Um, I think, you know, obviously it is, you know, in the interest of, of Taiwan's government in order to, and, and the companies in Taiwan uh, to continue to maintain, you know, their leadership um, and, and deny uh, the know-how and the manufacturing uh, uh, specifics uh, to to companies that might replace them, right? So you know there are you know plenty of of self interest reasons of why Taiwanese companies would continue to sell their finished products, right? Which are you know electronics components, right? That's what semiconductors are. They would continue to sell those to the manufacturers of electronics you know, on the east coast of China but they don't want to be replaced, right? So they're going to continue to, to withhold and deny, you know, aspects of sort of the know-how and their own supply chains from, from, from moving to the PRC. Now the PRC would love to replace Taiwan, that vulnerability from their own, uh, from their own supply chains, um, but desiring to replace that and actually making it happen are kind of two different things. And, and to date, that's been very difficult for the PRC to do. Um, I, I completely understand and, and agree with Rebecca's assertion that, that, that the PRC is more determined, but, but necessarily being more determined, I don't know if that necessarily changes some of the underlying conditions that would continue to make it very difficult for them to achieve those outcomes. Rebecca, what are your thoughts on the Taiwan factor? Yeah, and I would just say it's not just the determination, it's the capital and the, uh, and the scientific know-how that's behind it. Uh, so you can, 
be determined, but you have to have a lot of other ingredients as well. Um, and I think China does have that. On the uh, Taiwan situation, um, um, uh, I visited uh, uh, SMIC uh, in a semiconductor company in Shanghai. And uh, when the CEO was from uh, Taiwan, and, um, and I remember uh, covering venture, Asian venture capital in the early days when actually um, uh, the majority of it um, stemmed from Taiwan, but it moved to mainland China. And so we've seen talent and money uh, flow uh, in tech in, and in venture capital and in the semiconductor market from Taiwan into, um, into, um, into mainland Chinese companies. And uh, so you can't really, it's hard to stop that talent flow. So let me ask you both uh, a question about whether U.S. efforts uh, to hamper China's or slow China's development in, in high tech, what we're referring to here in our proposition is efforts to uh, implement selective economic decoupling whether that will have any negative impact uh, on the United States. Uh, I think there are some people who believe that by trying uh, to constrain China's development that there will be some backlash on uh, high-tech development in, in the United States. So I'd like to hear how both of you would respond uh, to that, uh, to that um, uh, statement. Uh, so Rebecca, I'll start with you. Yeah, I would certainly argue that um, both sides can benefit um, by collaboration and and, um, and cooperation. Uh, certainly, that's not what we're seeing today, and um, I, I think uh, we could lose out by um, not tapping into resources um, that advance technology and advance it um, not in a nationalistic way, but in, in an international way. I, I think uh, we're in a losing situation. The world is in a losing situation if the US and China uh, don't begin to work together um, on, on some of the areas that were actually being worked on together in the past, but now have decoupled. And I do think the US um, uh, could lose out and the world the world could lose out on innovation and advances in technology uh, with this decoupling that's going on. Matt, your perspective? Yeah, I think um, it, it is obvious there are there are costs and and downsides to uh, a less efficient sort of set of economic relationships, right? And certainly controls on, in, uh, on exports, uh, you know, dual use exports, uh, controls and screening of, of investments, um, restrictions on, on access to R&D, create frictions in a broader economic system, right? Um, but again, that, you know, those aren't the only costs that we would have to consider, right? So, I mean, the costs of, of higher prices, less efficient allocation of capital um, are certainly costs to consider, but there are also costs in terms of national security and the ability to continue to maintain, you know, productive uh, and, and, and uh, important parts of your own economy, 
as well as, you know, as, as Rob Atkinson, you know, the president of ITIF has laid out, you know, and I, when I think, you know, I recommend all viewers to take a look at, you know, his, his piece called Innovation Drag, uh, China's Impact on Developed Nations, looks at the impacts to, to broader global innovation that comes from the kinds of economic practices that the PRC follows, right? And so, you know, I think it, it is important that we not discount the other costs that come from the status quo system that the PRC's economic model perpetuates, right? So, you know, we can look at the costs that come from actions on our part to introduce frictions into the economic system that would slow down their development, right? But there are also costs from the actions that they've been taking to our own economies, right? If we, if we take a look back at, at the commission that, that President Obama put together in 2013, the Blair Huntsman Commission on, on intellectual property, you know, the findings by, by the two chairmen, you know, Dennis Blair, Admiral Lieutenant Blair, and former Director of National Intelligence, and, uh, and Governor slash Ambassador John Huntsman, um, looked at, at you know, costs of you know, three to $400 billion a year to the US economy uh, at intellectual property theft that, that comes from the process of the kinds of activities that the PRC is doing, right? And so we have to, I think, look at the costs on sort of both sides of that. And I think far too often, you know, the loudest voices are about the costs on, on one side of the ledger and not the costs on the other side of the ledger. And that's, I think, what's important for us to take in mind and, and reflect why the sets of decisions that the U.S. government in, in a bipartisan way are pursuing in terms of, of continuing to remain uncoupled in key strategic sectors. Right. Well, it seems that the U.S. could uh, do a better job of picking its targets, uh, for instance, going after TikTok, uh, going after WeChat. Um, I, I don't think TikTok is too much of a security threat. Anything else that you'd like to say on that particular question, Rebecca? Well, you know, I already mentioned, I already had uh, argued on, in this case, but I, I just wanted to add in that I, to Matt's point about the security issues, uh, it seems like we're, we're going after the wrong targets uh, to go after TikTok and WeChat. It, that's not gonna make much difference in, in the technology innovation race. Well, I, I would also... TikTok is a consumer app and, and we put so much attention on going out and make it such a high profile issue and then, then, then drop it basically. I would also argue that, that it is certainly not uh, unreasonable to expect that, that uh, social media platforms are venues of political influence. Um, it's an argument we've certainly made in, for a number of other social media platforms, right? So a social media platform that resides within a state that exercises near total control over information flows, um, it's not unreasonable to expect that that is a national security issue, you know, given all the arguments we've made about social media platforms in the context of Russian interference operations inside the United States. I would also offer that, that places like, like the, the Citizen Lab in, in, at the University of Toronto have been documenting for years the censorship and influence that both WeChat and TikTok have been exhibiting upon their user base in multiple democracies around the world. And so it is, in fact, I think 
you know, it is not the case that these are sort of undocumented national security risks, or in fact, the documentation is actually quite well established. I would agree with you that, that some of the, the actions and techniques that were used to address these things have not gone particularly well. That I will absolutely concede that to you. But to say that these are not areas of, of national security concern, you know, I would argue that, that, well, then we shouldn't be concerned about, you know, how Facebook is operating or anything else. So All right. well, who are, are the users of TikTok? The users of TikTok are here. Uh, TikTok is set up separately as a separate app from the Chinese app, the Chinese equivalent. So you're talking about the users. You're talking about it's user-generated content. Right, but the algorithms have been shown to block and censor politically sensitive things to the PRC government. Within the PRC. And in the United States, Australia, Europe, and other places. Okay, we're gonna move on to another question. <laughs> we have a great question, I think, from Avery Goldstein uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, he's trying to get to the issue of why in some areas of technology, although of course, Rebecca's right, that China's made enormous strides in many areas of technology. Uh, that there are some sectors, some uh, some technologies where where China has failed to, to catch up or make the breakthroughs uh, that they wanted, and so he really asks, why have they failed in the in the areas that they that they have failed? And if the answer is export controls, does that necessarily mean they will continue to fail in the future? Uh, but if you think that export controls is not the primary reason, then I'd be interested in hearing your assessment of why you think that China has failed in some of these uh, key areas. So uh, Matt, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I mean, so if, if we were to take sort of the other side of that argument, let, let's take a look at sort of high-speed rail, right? As an example of, of an area that, that the PRC has done particularly well and, and now holds sort of a global leadership position in terms of the creation of, of sort of high-speed rail systems as, as an industry sector. I would remind us all that, that that is not an area that falls underneath sort of sort of globally understood dual use export control regimes, right? It's certainly an area of valuable economic prosperity to, to Japan and Germany, you know, who are world leaders in, in, in you know, or who have been world leaders in those, in those industry sectors. But when you look at the actual, the, the sort of the broader system of, of dual use export controls and investment screening criteria uh, that, that you know, countries around the world, including the United States have used to look at uh, for things that, that have impacts you know, on national security, the development of high-speed rail has not been an area of that. And so you know, I would just argue that, that you know, if you take a look at you know, the creation of, of aerospace and aviation industry, an area that has significant numbers of controls and an area that, that is sort of is just logically sort of connected to a broader qualitative military advantage and a high-speed rail industry that doesn't have those protections, that the outcome was that the PRC was in fact successful uh, in achieving sort of global leadership in that sector. And it's been unsuccessful in sectors that it also identified in areas that they wanted to have global leadership but that those controls were in place. I think the same thing plays out for semiconductors, the same thing plays out in industri industrial robotics, the same thing plays out in some advanced materials. 
And so in a number of sectors where those things exist, the PRC has not been as successful, right? Which I would suggest that, that then selective decoupling, which I would consider to be really continued uncoupling, um, is, 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 is likely to result in continuing to hold them back in those areas. Rebecca? Well, I, I think we need only look at where China has come from um, and the speed at which it has developed in so many of these sectors. This would not have been an argument two decades ago at all. And now we are viewing China as a threat. Uh, so I think if you look at uh, the number of patents, worldwide patents, China has surpassed the US. Uh, you, if you look at national R&D spending, China has surpassed the US. If you look at venture capital spending, it's on par. I think it's just a matter of time before uh, China catches up in some of these sectors that it's still lagging in. It's gone, it's advanced beyond us in many, many areas, but it's granted semiconductors is an area that China is still developing. And I think it's just a matter of time before these sectors, China takes a lead in more and more sectors than it already has. Okay. Um we have a question from uh, Marco Luisi, uh, who is uh, studying for his master's at uh, Shanghai University. And he says, as a student, I've been reading a lot about the EU regulatory power on matters of uh, privacy and data processing and industrial policy. Do you think that the EU, from this perspective, might be a good counterbalancing force to curb the spread of Chinese standards. So maybe a little bit uh, not uh, outside uh, our, our issue areas, but nevertheless, a very good question. So um, uh, Rebecca, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I'm not sure I understand the uh, question. Is he talking, he seems to be talking about two different things, um, the privacy and the standards. Uh, yes, I, th I think that's right. But um, uh, do you think that EU regulatory um, uh, power is going to be uh, uh, important and influential in, uh, in, in trying to curb the spread of Chinese standards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, I, I think uh, you, uh, Europe has taken a lead on that and, um, and, uh, and could influence uh, the way these privacy issues are handled. Um, but again, I think China will do its own thing. Matt? And if we if we're if we're decoupling, then we're 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 saying, okay, China, go ahead and do your own thing. Yes, well, that is certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, uh, you have any thoughts on the role of the EU and its uh, regulatory power? Well, I, I mean, I think it's it's clear to everyone that that you know, GDPR, um, you know, can have an important. Uh, role in, in shaping the de decisions of companies around the world that would want to you know, have access to a 400 million person, you know, you know, as a collective, you know, the largest economy kind of in the world that, that of course they will have some influence over that. And I think it's, um, it's, it's hard to see how the PRC's own views on these issues are compatible with what the European Union would put together uh, as its own standards um, 
And so I think it, it remains to be seen how that will be put in place. But if, if you were to sort of follow the logical extension of what the EU is pursuing, then it, it would be difficult to understand how PRC firms would gain a serious foothold uh, inside the EU, um, given those restrictions. This has really been an excellent uh, debate and discussion. I know I learned a lot. Um, uh, all of our debates have been incredibly uh, informative, but uh, uh, this has been a really interesting deep dive into, uh, into technology. And uh, we're going to ask our viewers uh, to vote one last time uh, on, uh, on the proposition. And this will be our final vote on our final uh, debate for our 2020 China Power series. All of our debates uh, are uh, on YouTube. Uh, we will issue them separately as podcasts. Uh, they, they are archived. We hope that uh, if you found today's debate or other debates useful, that you'll recommend them uh, to others uh, and uh, particularly to educators and uh, people around the world who are interested in these questions of the competition between the United States and China and China's uh, growing power. So maybe we can bring up the results uh, on the screen as people are, are voting. And uh, now we have 56% uh, uh, disagreeing with, uh, with the proposition and 44% uh, agreeing. Um, hopefully we can get a few more votes in. Uh, unfortunately, this uh, software we have to choose between displaying the number of votes and the percentage of votes. So we can't show both at the same time, uh, but uh, I, I, can, I can find out later how many uh, votes we have. Uh, but we did have almost 300 votes in our Twitter poll, which we did run over the last four days. Um, and that really had, of course, uh, some interesting results in our Twitter poll. We had 65.5% agreeing and 34.5% disagreeing. Um, this is a little bit closer uh, and we've now shifted uh, to uh, a little bit higher percentage of people disagreeing with the proposition than, uh, than agreeing. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll probably get a few more votes that come in. It takes a little bit of time to pop into uh, our, our slide. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, that's the way the, uh, the voting system works. Uh, but this is really, it's been a fantastic discussion. I wanna thank uh, both Rebecca Fannin and uh, Matt Turpin for uh, joining us today. And uh, again, this debate and all of our others will be online. And uh, we hope that all of uh, our, our viewers found, uh, found our debates uh, useful. Um, so once again, um, hope you all have a good evening or day wherever you are in the world. Uh, thank you again for joining us.